Inside the scarred up heart Inside a raging storm The word is angered Cause Satan has declared a war I'll fight this battle, Lord Because you're worth fighting for I pledge my undying love to you at war I'll take up the sword of truth because you're worth fighting for I pledge my undying love to you You died for me Though I led such a shameful life Grace has set me free So I'm honored Hello everyone, this is Chaplain Gary Rayburn and welcome to today's program. we got an awesome program for you today and we want to invite you to come and join us at Rig Ministries. We're located at 215 Industrial Avenue right here in Carmi, Illinois and we have a daily service Monday through Friday at 1230. So if you're in the area, just drop in and join us. Now sit back, listen and enjoy today's message and then do us a favor and share this CD. Pass it on with somebody that you love. Help us spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Undying love to you. You died for me. Though I led such a shameful life, grace has set me free. So I'm honored to struggle. Jesus is worth fighting for. 
not only is Jesus worth fighting for, but so is this country, America, worth fighting for. And this is going to be a tribute CD to all the men and women that have fought hard for the freedom that we have here in America. And we've got a testimony we're going to share with you today from Jim Skaggs. And I recently met Jim over to TA Truck Stop in Mount Vernon, Illinois at the chapel service there. And we recorded this testimony for you of Jim Skaggs. And you're going to really be blessed by his testimony. But first I want to play for you a recording by a good friend of ours, Billy Choate. And Billy recorded this back in the 70s, and it, it's a tribute to uh, not only his son who came back from Vietnam, but all the other Vietnam veterans that were coming home. And this is a powerful, powerful message right here in itself. So here's uh, Billy Choate. Two years before my son was born, I returned from the war in Europe. I was greeted by most people with a firm handshake, a pat on the back, and more than likely a, we sure gave him hell, didn't we? Today, a soldier returning from Vietnam will find things just a little bit different. He will find a large percentage of the people are unconcerned about the war in Vietnam. They don't know where the country is. They don't know how many American boys died there last week. And if you ask the average American citizen what it's all about, the answer will probably be, well, I guess freedom is involved. More than likely, he will hear, you think Vietnam is bad? Have you ever tried driving on the freeway between 4 p.m. and 6 o'clock? Too bad you're home, another adds grimly. Things are in a mess. The Mekong Delta, another will say, oh, that was nothing. You should have been with General Patton, the Third Army, in his drive across Europe. Now that was real war. Vietnam is still a passing fancy to most people in the United States. Most GIs in Vietnam feel Americans, including lawmakers, do not understand or accept the truth that the conflict in Vietnam is war. The public worries more about Congress raising taxes. Congress worries about public opinion. But the GI in Vietnam worries only about living. His life there is the nightly blackout the sound of incoming mortar shells. He is on the lookout for booby traps that can blow his legs off or take his life in an instant. He is fighting an enemy and an ally that look exactly alike. He would give a month's pay to sleep in a good bed and 10 years of his life for a night at home with mom. No, he is not a bit player in some dramatic play. He is at war, kill or be killed. Moreover, he is a very young American citizen. The average age of a combat GI in Vietnam is 18 and a half. But what a man he is. A tight muscled young fellow who under normal circumstances would be considered by society as half man, half boy, and not yet dry behind the ears. Right now, he is the beardless hope of free men the world over. 
he is for the most part unmarried, and the only material possessions he has is a transistor radio and the bonds he buys every month. He has just got out of high school the past couple of years, received social grades, played a little basketball or football, and had a girl who broke up with him when he went overseas, or who swears she is still faithful, although he is half the world away. He still has trouble spelling, and writing letters home is a painful process. But he can break down a rifle in 30 seconds and put it back together again in 29. He can describe the nomenclature of a fragmentation grenade, explain how a machine gun operates, and of course, utilize either if the need arises. He obeys now without hesitation, but he is not broken. He has seen more suffering than he should have in his short life. He has wept in public and in private. And he is not ashamed. He can cook his own meals, fix his own hurts, mend his own ribs, material or mental. He can do the work of two civilians, draw half the pay of one, and find ironic humor in it all. He has learned to use his hands as a weapon, and his weapon as his hands. He can save a life, or most assuredly, take one. Nineteen and a half years old, my son, what a man he is, already. Alright, I know you enjoyed that, and now we're going to get into that service that we had recently with Jim Skaggs over at the Mount Vernon TA Truck Stop Freedom Chapel, and this is one powerful testimony that I know you're going to enjoy. Here's that service we had with Jim Skaggs. Thank you, Gary. <clears throat> you all want to stand with me? And uh, we're just going to praise and worship the Lord this morning. Lord, as we come to you this day, we commit this entire time to you and say, Lord, have your way here. You are welcome in this place. And God, uh, we do pray that you're going to bring some more drivers in here this morning. But not only that, Lord, that those who are here, Father, which is us, we just want to praise you and give glory to you and honor you with this day and give thanks unto you. Thank you for another day of life. Thank you for a great country to live in. Thank you for your mercies, which are never ending, and your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. There is power, power, wonder, power in the blood of the
a story of a courageous young man. I don't really don't call it my story, but I feel obligated to share this story. And for years I didn't. But I feel obligated to is because um, 
God was so graceful in my life. And so I call this a story of a, a courageous young man and uh, God's amazing grace. I served in Vietnam as a gunner with the 1st Cavalry Division in 1969 and 1970. And in 1995, there was a uh, reunion of my unit in St. Louis. And me living on the east side and fairly close by, I'd never gone to a reunion. But some friends of mine were going to go, and they invited me, and so I went. And I remember at that reunion, uh, they were having different guys get up and share a little bit about their experience in Vietnam. And I saw that, and I remember standing there thinking, if I ever get the opportunity to share this story in a large public venue like this, there were a lot of veterans there. If I ever get the opportunity, I just said this to myself, I didn't go up and say, hey, can I share my story? But I thought, if I ever get the chance, I'll do it. Well, I'd recorded my name and my address and phone number in the guest register. And went home and thought nothing more of it. In 1999, in January, I get a letter from the historian of the 1st Cavalry Division that we served with, with the unit. And uh, he uh, wanted to know a little bit about me. He got my name off the guest register. So he wanted to know my story. So I wrote him a story of what happened and I sent it back to him. And immediately when he got that, he called me. And he said, this is an amazing story. He says, I want you to know I was on the site when that event took place that day. He said, I was there, I was a Cobra helicopter pilot. And he, he said, I saw what was going on. And he said, I didn't know there were any survivors. And he said, we are gonna dedicate a barracks in the memory of one of our fallen comrades in August of this year. Now this is 1999 and he said, we'd like for you to come down address the 1st Cavalry Division, share your story, and we want to dedicate this barracks to your crewmates. And I remembered what I had said when I was standing there at that reunion. I said, Lord, if I ever get the opportunity, I'll do that. I had no idea that the 1st Cavalry Division was going to contact me and say, we want you to come down here and address the troops at Fort Hood, Texas. And so I did that. And they made a professional videotape of this story and it's been passed all over the country. Uh, I've been on the radio in St. Louis twice. I've been on Fox News television in Detroit. I've been at the traveling Vietnam Wall and shared this testimony on two occasions, once in Dayton, Ohio and once in Troy, Illinois. And then I've shared it in churches, and VFWs and American Legions and truck stop chapels wherever anybody will hear the story and like I say it's not about me I really want to emphasize that this is about a courageous young man by the name of Gary McKitty and God's amazing grace I, I mean I just I was just the recipient and I just happened to be there and so that's what this story is about I was raised in church 
my uncle was a pastor of a, of a very successful church in St. Louis back in the 50s and 60s. He was an Assembly of God pastor. And by the time I was 13 years old, we all went to a Christian summer camp. They had an altar call about the middle of the week. They had an altar call every service. We had to go to church service in the morning and then do your arts and crafts and your swimming and all your recreation through the day and then a church service in the evening. So about Wednesday, I came forward, gave my life to the Lord, and my cousin and I, there was four, four of us that were cousins, and my one cousin and I went forward and gave our lives to the Lord and had a glorious experience with the Lord. I knew I was saved. I knew I was born again. It was powerful, and I'd never experienced anything like it before. And I went back home. By the time I was 15 or 16, I didn't want anything more to do with church. I was just one of those hard-headed, stubborn kids. We all can probably relate to that. Us, when we were young guys, we wanted to do our own thing. We didn't want mom and dad or anybody else to tell us what to do. And so I began to drift away from the Lord and, and uh, wouldn't go to church. And my parents were very upset. But anyway, I graduated from high school and the war in Vietnam was raging. And by the time I was 19 years old, I knew I was probably going to be drafted. And two buddies of mine were joining the Army, and they said, why don't you join us? We'll go in on the buddy system. At least we'll, the three of us can be together through basic training. So I thought, if I join the Army for three years, rather than get drafted for two, I can get a good school out of the deal. I can maybe avoid Vietnam and avoid the draft. And so I joined the Army in January 1969, and seven months later, I arrived in Vietnam. So my plan wasn't working, but that's what happened. And I had gone over in communications. I was, an air I was trained to be an air traffic controller. When I got to Vietnam, with my graduating class of about 15 guys in that class, they took me out of the class and put me in a combat unit with the 1st of the 9th 1st Cavalry Division. And they put the rest of the guys in the air traffic control towers. I got singled out to be in a combat unit as a radio telephone operator and my job was to work in an operations center that was probably about three or four times the size of this uh, trailer chapel here. And what I did was I kept track of helicopter sorties and infantry units all day. We had Cobra helicopters which are the heavily armed attack helicopters and we had Hueys, which were the troop transport helicopters, and we had the small helicopter, which was called a, an OH-6, an observation helicopter. They were a light observation helicopter. We called them a loach. And what they did was they were called scouts, and they would go down at treetop level into areas of suspected enemy concentration, and they would scout out the area, and basically they were sitting ducks. And the Cobra would fly escort up around 500 feet to 1,000 feet. And when the scout spotted something or got into trouble, then he would radio and get out of the area, hopefully in time, and the Cobra would roll in and do his business. I uh, was a guitar player and a singer at that time, and I was sitting on my bunk one day. I'd been in Vietnam for two months, and I'd started to 
on my days off because I was bored and I was I had a chip on my shoulder because I was angry about being taken out of air traffic control and put in this unit. I didn't want to be there. I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted to be up in the tower and uh, I didn't want to be with the first cab. Didn't want anything to do with it. Now, I'm sitting on my bunk one day and a young man walks in. I'm playing the guitar. Young fellow walks in, got a big smile on his face. His name is Gary McKitty. He says, hey, my name's Gary. I'm from Dayton, Ohio. I play the guitar too. And uh, we uh, got to be best friends. We hit it off real well. Well, it turns out that he volunteered to be a door gunner, crew chief in the Loach helicopter, the Scout helicopter. Scout helicopter crews at that time had a 30-day life expectancy. They were shot down left and right. So they were always looking for volunteers. And that's what I began doing on my days off, just to get some flying time to do, you know, do something different than sitting in that, in that, uh, that operations center. And so I began flying as what they call the observer, basically as the co-pilot. They would only put one pilot in a Loach helicopter. All the other helicopters had two, but they would only put one pilot in there because they were shot down so often they didn't want to risk two pilots at one time. They'd put an enlisted man up in the left front seat give me the basics on how to fly that thing and mainly my job was to operate the radios switch channels when necessary and uh, just to observe and keep an eye out for what was going on it was an extra pair of eyes and so I began doing that and I flew more and more and as Gary and I became better friends I flew with him exclusively and we we flew as, a, as teammates uh, we had a lot of amazing experience, very frightening experiences. We flew together for seven months. In May of 1970, President Nixon at that time ordered us to escalate the war and what we were going to do was invade Cambodia. Cambodia was right near us. We were probably about 50 miles from the Cambodian border and there were staging areas there for the North Vietnamese Army. What they would do is bring their the machinery and their weapons and their, all their supplies came, a lot of them would come down through Cambodia where we were not supposed to go and then they would bring them across the border into Vietnam and use them against us. And so we were scheduled to fly as our unit, as our team, and at this point I had volunteered to fly completely scouts all the time for about a month prior to this. So now I was flying scouts full time every day. And on May the 6th, he and I and a warrant officer by the name of Tommy Whitten from Florida were scheduled to fly into Cambodia. And on May the 5th, I stopped by Gary's bunk to check on him, see how he was doing. Gary had never said anything to me about being a Christian. But I noticed when we would be out at launch occasionally at a little fire base out in the middle of nowhere, I'd see him pull out a little New Testament out of his pocket and he would read that. And I'd see him reading that, but he never said anything to me about it. All the experiences we had been through, the near misses, being shot at, nearly crashing a number of times, and the scary things we had to cover, other helicopters shot down right below us and, and having to cover that, he had never we had never expressed any fear about what we were doing. That night, on May the 5th, as I stopped in to check on him, he wasn't the same. 
and he was pensive, he was pacing back and forth, and he said, Jim, I don't want you to go in the morning. I want you to, I want to scratch your name off the list. I want you going on this mission. I said, no. I said, you know, we always fly as a team. We're buddies. I said, you're going, I'm going. And then he said this. He said, if you insist on going, he said, I want you to pray with me right now. He said, I'm going to stay up and pray. And he says, I want you to join me. And to this day, I regret that I said, no, I'm not going to pray. The next morning, we got up before sunup. It's called first light. We wanted to be at our target before, for, before the sun came up. And we flew out with the Cobra, just a pair of us, headed across the Cambodian border came to the village that we were assigned to check out and as the sun was coming up and we're flying into the village we noticed civilians leaving which is always a sign that something not good is going on there and as we flew in we noticed these large warehouse type buildings something like we'd never seen before in Vietnam and there were huts everywhere and there were foxholes dug and there were uniforms, North Vietnamese Army uniforms hanging out on clotheslines to dry. We had flown right into a North Vietnamese stronghold. And we circled the village and as we came across this one hut, an enemy soldier jumped out. We woke him up and he jumped out into a foxhole. And Gary asked permission. We always had to get permission to fire and Gary asked permission can I shoot him? Because that's what we did. And Mr. Whidden said, no, he's unarmed. Let's not shoot him. So we circled back around, and when we came back, this guy was gone. Now we carried, in, in the back seat where Gary was, we carried a little box of white phosphorus grenades and fragmentation grenades. And we burned things with those grenades, and we blew things up. And so Mr. Whidden says, take a white phosphorus, drop it on that hut and let's see what happens. He dropped it on that hut, it exploded into flames and all hell broke loose. We began taking fire from every direction and that helicopter was shot to pieces. Fortunately, amazingly, none of the three of us were hit. Directly behind my head was the transmission. It took numerous rounds and when it did, the transmission fluid, scalding hot, came flowing out, covered all of us, coated us with transmission fluid soaked the inside of the helicopter and we began yelling we're hit we're hit we're taking fire and down and south we headed as fast as we could towards the border the cobra rolled in and and um, and then caught up with us we're flying as fast as we can to get back across we did cross back into the vietnamese border and one of my jobs as the observer was to hit what is called the inertia lock. There were two handles between myself and the pilot, one for each of us, and what that did was we had these harness, aircraft harnesses over us that allowed us to move around, and when you hit that lock, that inertia lock, it pulls you back in the seat and tightens you in so in the event of a crash you won't be thrown out. So I hit those inertia locks, and I turned to Gary. I said, Gary, I said, you need to dump 
those frags. You need to dump all of our ordnance. Get that stuff out of here. And when I turned to look at him, I saw this look in his eyes that I'll never forget. It was a blank stare. It was like two laser beams just burning right through me. He knew. We talked to Mr. Wooden. We were up about 300 feet, maybe, doing about 100 miles per hour. Talked to Mr. Wooden, said, can we find a bomb crater? The bomb crater is everywhere, all over Vietnam. We find a bomb crater, sit down next to it, we'll get in the bomb crater and wait for help, because this thing isn't going to fly. He said, no, we're flying at home. So we continued to fly until the transmission locked up. All the lights were flashing, the warning lights were flashing on the instrument panel. Transmission locked up, and when that happened, the engine locked up, and down we went into the jungle. When we hit, we hit in a little clearing just before the jungle, and we flipped over on the left side, which was my side, and I remember seeing the ground rushing by my left side, and I, I heard the blades hit, and I saw the blades go flying off. Then we flipped back upright, and I saw the jungle rushing at us, and I heard the glass in front of me break, and that's the last thing I remember about the crash. Now, Gary was sitting in the back seat in a jump seat. He had a lap belt. That's all he had. I came to flat on my back and I'm looking up through the jungle and there's a bonfire what appeared to be a bonfire burning about 50 feet away from me and I got to my feet to go over there and there were also tracer rounds burning and cooking off all the ammunition the small arms ammunition that we had in that helicopter was cooking off like popcorn and going every direction and I thought I survived this crash, but now this live ammunition is going to get me. But I've got to get over there. And I tried to move, and I, wouldn't, I couldn't move, and I didn't know what was going on, what was wrong with my body. It would not move. And I looked down at the ground, and my right foot was pointing backwards. My right thigh had been broken in two places. My pelvis had been broken in three places. And I was covered with first, second, and third degree burns. My entire backside was covered with first and second degree burns. My right arm is burned from my wrist all the way to my shoulder and then I have numerous other third-degree burns on my legs my abdomen I fell back down passed out and I came to again and when I did there were two medical corpsmen on the ground next to me trying to get me onto a stretcher and I remember I grabbed one of them by the wrist and I said I've got two crewmen down here I said you've got to find them and the one guy ran over to where the fire was burning, the tracer rounds no longer cooking off, and he came back and he looked at me and shook his head no. I knew what he meant, they were gone. I'd lost my crew. They flew me back to a rear area, and I was in and out of consciousness for several days, didn't know how badly I'd been wounded. I was in shock. And an investigation team came in, maybe in a week or so, and began asking me questions. They asked me, were you in the back seat that day and Gary was in the front seat? And I said, no. I said, well, how did you get out of the helicopter? I said, I don't know. I was unconscious. The Cobra was up above, but he couldn't see. There was too much smoke, and we had crashed and slid in underneath the jungle. There was too much smoke and too much flames. He couldn't see what was going on. And he said, well, if Gary was in the back seat, we found him in the front seat with his arms wrapped around Mr. Whitten. They said, we figure what happened was 
He jumped or he got out. He drug you out of that helicopter. And then he went back for the pilot and the live ammunition killed them both. And then another week or so, Catholic priest came up to me and he was going, making his rounds, and he was the chaplain there at the unit. He said, do you want to talk about anything? And I tried to talk, and when I did, I broke down and began crying. I couldn't talk to him. I just asked him why. It didn't make any sense to me. They shipped me back home, and I ended up in Denver, Colorado, Fitzsimmons Army Hospital, and in a month or so, I got a call from Mr. McKitty in Miamisburg, Ohio, just south of Dayton. And Mr. McKitty's on the phone, and he's crying and crying and crying. He can't stop crying. And he says, Jim, it's just one thing i got to know. He said, did my boy get a chance to pray before he died? I said, yes, sir, he certainly did. I spent 12 months in three weeks, almost 13 months in the hospital from the day I was wounded to the day I was medically discharged, undergoing uh, numerous skin grafts and resurgeries and and uh, all the rehab that was necessary. And during this time, I got worse in my head. And now I really got an attitude. Now nothing makes sense, and I'm really angry with God. It didn't make any sense to me why God would take a young man like this who prayed and read his Bible and saved my life. And so when I was discharged from the army, I began to do all those things that a person does when you're suffering from survivor's guilt and PTSD and the whole works. I began drinking heavily and doing drugs. Started playing guitar for a rock band in St. Louis and was totally miserable. And in 1973, I got married. And I was just depressed, angry, miserable the whole time. Nothing made any sense to me. And in January 1975, my wife went to a little church in South St. Louis. Her whole family went to church. They'd heard, on, heard it on the radio and so for some reason they went to church and she comes back and says, guess what? I got saved. I'm going, oh boy, ain't this great. And she says, I want you to go to church with me. I said, I don't want anything to do with it. She said, please. I said, no, I don't want anything to do with it. And for several weeks, she asked me, please go to church. She'd go into church all the time. And I noticed a change in her right away. Before that, she had been meaner than a snake, just like I was. And I noticed a change in her right away. And I couldn't deny that. So finally, I just said, yeah, I'll go to church with you. I went to church with her. And that night, her family, they're all new at this. They don't know anything about church much and so they're sitting down towards the front preachers preaching at the end of the service he gives an altar call 
and they all get up and they go down front. Well, they're already saved, but they want to get saved again, I guess. I don't know. They went down there for prayer, and I'm sitting alone, and I'm thinking, I don't want to sit here by myself, so I'll, jo I'll join them. So I went down there, and I stood there, and I thought, well, we'll just, I'll, just, I'll just blend in here. And this minister is going from one person to the next and laying hands on them and praying for them. When he gets to me, he stops. And he looks me right in the eye and he points his finger in my face and says, Young man, he said, God has worked a great miracle in your life, but he will not put up with you forever. He said, He wants you to come to him right now. Completely, totally. I believe that man heard from God. And I listened to what he said. And I repented. And I gave my heart anew to the Lord at that time. And almost immediately, I began, as I began to attend church, and I began to enter into worship, and I began to develop my prayer life, I began to get into the Word, things began to change inside me. The depression, the anger, the alcohol, the drugs, all that went by the wayside. I didn't want anything more to do with it. I had no appetite for it. Nobody, I didn't have to give it up. I just, he, he took it. I had beer sitting in the icebox. Just didn't want it anymore. I began filling myself with the Word, and I began to devour the Bible. And I think within six months, I read all the way through it. Just began to devour it. And I came across this scripture in John chapter 15, verse 13, and it says this. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this. He says, Love has no man greater than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. When I read that, it leapt out of the pages and hit me right between the eyes. It made sense. And I know Jesus was talking to his disciples, but it had a personal meaning for me. And the Lord told me, he said, Son, he said, I always give my best for your worst always and since then I've continued walking with the Lord and and uh, served him in any capacity I can find and have served as an associate pastor and and uh, God has me involved in truck stop ministry and prison ministry I've been involved in for a long 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 time seen a lot of truck drivers and inmates and people come to the Lord and I just love sharing Jesus with people and the, his reality his grace and his mercies and I came across this scripture I want to read it to you Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 says this in that day they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. I'm looking forward to that day. Jesus is coming soon. We all want to be ready when he shows. Thank you very much for allowing me to share my story with you. God bless you all. Thank you.
testimony and what a powerful song that is that was written by richard ware and he got bill shell to help him record that i've been telling you guys about bill shell studio down there in southern illinois and that is uh what bill shell can do for you if you'll give him a call and let him help you with your project bill shell's phone number is 618-499-9439 give him a call and let him help you with one of your projects or call richard ware richard has a great ministry and his phone number is 573-220-8782 richard ware is a evangelist 
singer, songwriter, disguised as an over-the-road truck driver. He's out there witnessing for Jesus everywhere he goes. So do me a favor and give him a call right now at 573-220-8782. He'd love to send you his brand new CD that's got this song on it. It's called uh, Christmas in Kansas 2013, and it's a free CD for all you drivers that will give him a call right now. Here's our good friend Billy Choate with one more recording, and it's about the soul of America. Listen to this. This will go straight to your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Billy Choate speaking. I would like to talk to you about something that is very near and dear to my heart. I am sure is near and dear to your heart. That is this great land that we live in, America. And in the next few moments, I would like to try and identify the soul of America for you. Now in our search for the soul of America, we discover three radical differences, which have in the past, do now, at once, identify distinguish and astonish the rest of the world about us. First, in origin we sprang from a spiritual motive. America was founded by men in the search of the privilege of worshiping God according to the dictates of their own conscience. Other nations, for the most part, came into existence by conquest for selfish and ambitious motives. In the atmosphere of God, not gold, America was born. Second, the blood of the world is in our veins. There never was a country whose citizens contained such a strange mixture of blood. A strange but wise providence seems to have commanded all the peoples of the world to make their contribution toward the production of a new people, Americans. We are not English, Spanish, French, Germans, Swedes, Danes, Russians, or any other. We are all of them. As the right proportion of certain elements make gas, and a different proportion and arrangement of the same elements make water, so the mixing of different bloods has produced a new race, Americans. We have enough German blood in us to make us hard-headed, enough Scotch blood to make us conservative, we have enough Italian blood to make us happy, and enough English blood to make us think the world owes us a pity. Indeed, the blood of the world flows through our veins. Dr. Peter Marshall said, Religious liberty according to the dictates of one's own conscience, and equal opportunity for all men. These are the twin pillars of the American dream. That is what Thomas Jefferson was striving for when he wrote the Constitution of the United States. Third, we have undertaken to be the big brother to the rest of the world. Now some of us don't like this, but our very nature demands it. History gives no example of any other nation heretofore helping the cause of the small downtrodden peoples of the earth, asking no reward save that all men have a right to live peaceably without fear of aggression and dictators. We have sacrificed the blood of over a million men just to give humanity a chance to be and live as God intended. 
Now just take a glance at our history. When Washington was inaugurated, every church bell in the Capitol rang for an hour. When the president took his oath, he held the Bible in his hands, pressed his lips to it, turned his face toward heaven and said, I swear, so help me God. In the formation of every state, God's law and God's day were incorporated in every code. To this very day, in this great land that we live in, the oath is taken in the name of God. Every Congress and every legislature has a chapter. The great national holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, and other religious holidays are observed as a testimony that our nation recognizes our dependence upon God. When our coins were designed in humble commemoration of God as their strength, the designer stamped on them, in God we trust. In our pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, we say one nation under God. In our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, the second verse we sing, then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God we trust. The Star-Spangled Banner in triumph shall wave for the land of the free and the home of the brave. In every crisis, the president of the nation has called us to prayer. Washington called the nation to prayer. Three times Lincoln called the nation to prayer. Woodrow Wilson, with a breaking heart, called the nation to prayer. We're told that 150 years ago, a noted Frenchman came to America to seek the secret of her greatness. On his return to France, he wrote, I sought for America's greatness. I found it not in her fields and forests. I found it not in her mines and factories. I found it not in her fleets and commerce. I found it not in her Congress or great tribunals. It was only when I entered her churches and heard her pulpits thundering against sin and preaching righteousness that I discovered her greatness. Then he added, America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Every dead nation and every dead civilization has followed a five-fold course to its extinction. Adversity, prosperity, luxury, dissipation, and desecration. The soul of America is God. Beware, America, lest you lose your soul. Well, friends, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. Are you saved? I'm not asking you if you're a good person or if you go to church. I'm asking, are you saved? If you died right now, would you go to heaven? If you was at the gates of heaven and St. Peter asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? What would the answer be? Do you know the answer? The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and death is is the separation from God, and separation from God is an eternity in hell. 
That's bad news. But I've got some good news for you. The good news of the Bible is that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The scripture says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between Jews or Greeks, rich or poor, the same Lord over all. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you saved? If you're not sure, if you're not living for Jesus, pray this prayer with me right now. Oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe His shed blood, death, burial, and resurrection was just for me. I now receive Him as my Savior. Thank you, Lord. Forgive me for my sins. I receive this gift of salvation and everlasting life because of your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, call someone. Give us a call right here at Receiving in God Ministries. Well, friends, we hope you enjoyed today's message, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us, call us, or log on to our website and email us. Our phone number is 618-383-2107, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 578, Carmine, Illinois 62821, or log on to our website and email us at www.regministries.com. And remember... Jesus loves you, and we do too. And this is Chaplain Gary Rayburn, and we'll talk at you later. I saw Jesus hanging on that.